Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Julia Pimsler. Julia is author of Go Big Now and the best-selling Million Dollar Women. She is the founder of the Million Dollar Women Social Venture and also built the number one language teaching company for kids, Little Pim, into a multi-million dollar business. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. I'm so glad to have you here. Great to be with you, Ursula. So I'm I'm really excited to get into this, but I, let's start here. Um, why are you so focused on mindset? I mean, I, I, there are so many other business skill sets and you have such a deep background as an entrepreneur. Why mindset? Why is that such a big deal? Mindset work was the game changer for me when I was ready to take my business big. I worked with a mindset coach who helped me overcome some limiting beliefs that I had about myself. And if you don't know what a limiting belief is, a limiting belief is just an unconscious belief you have about what you can do that keeps you from pursuing your bigger dreams. And mm. in my case, I don't think I was ready to learn the business skills or join the networks I needed to join to take my business big without having done that mindset work. And so yeah. this is kind of my way of paying it forward is to help other people get access to that same kind of transformational mindset work that usually you have to, you know, pay a coach, go to a workshop, join a community, spend all kinds of time and money on, and I wanted to make it more accessible. Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I've heard people say that mindset is 80% of being successful as an entrepreneur, and then the rest is all stuff that can be uh, that can be learned, but mindset, once it's in place, so crucial. I so 100% believe that. 80, I think success yeah. in business is 80% mindset, 20% skill set. Because, you know, you meet yeah. people all the time who have very successful businesses and you think, well, wait, they're not smarter than I am. So how come they were <laughs> able to do that? That's, right? that's mindset. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, so that's a great way to, that's a great way to put it. How is uh, neuro-linguistic programming core to your work, NLP? Yes. I encountered NLP when the mindset coach I referred to earlier, Gina Malacone Long, who I wrote about in both of my books, she helped me break through these limiting beliefs. She did a whole uh, host of other things with me that led to some big transformations. And once I broke through and you know scaled up my business and wrote my book and had so many of the things I wanted, I called her up and said, well, I want to become a coach now. What kind of training do you think I should get? And she said, oh, hands down, go get trained in NLP. Now, I didn't hmm. even know that's what she was trained in, or if she had told me that I had forgotten it because it didn't mean anything to me. But once right. I started researching it, I found out that it's a rapid change psychology method that has brought about really big transformation for millions of people. It's only been about around since the 1970s. 
And Mm. if listeners have heard of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is much more well-known, this is a bit Mm -hmm. like CBT on steroids. (laughs) So this is CBT (laughs) for inpatient people, basically all entrepreneurs, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, uh, yeah, thank you for filling us in on that. I, I know your history as an entrepreneur is so varied. So the fact you've been successful in all these multiple realms really speaks to the uh, effectiveness of the techniques you're using. So you were, you had a film production company, you owned a language school for kids called Little Pim. And then you started the million dollar women movement. And from our conversation just before we started, you talked about the impact of the million dollar women movement. And tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, the through line is really making things that are inaccessible, accessible. So my first career, I was a filmmaker. I, we made documentaries. I really wanted to be part of the national conversation around reform, around education, race issues, healthcare. And there was a lot of information that, you know, wasn't easily accessible. So we made that more readily accessible through our films. Then when I had my first son, I wanted to teach him French. I had grown up bilingual in French and English and always thought that was the best gift my parents ever gave me. But the truth is, it's mainly the 1% teaching their kids a foreign language. You know, they've always brought in people from other countries to have their kids be fluent in Chinese or Spanish. And yet most people couldn't afford or access foreign language learning for young children. And it's such a brain booster. So I created Mm -hmm. the multimedia series, Little Pim. And Little Pim is from my last name, Pimsler. And we created Mm -hmm. a little character, a panda bear, whose name was Little Pim. (laughs) And that allowed us to teach children all over the country and then all over the world a second language from their own home in an affordable way. And so Mm. carrying that through this, making things accessible, I was lucky enough to be in New York to when I got stuck in my business, had a lot of entrepreneurs I could call on for advice, coaches I could hire. I didn't have a lot of money. I grew up with, you know, a single mom who was a teacher, but I believed in myself. Again, that's the mindset. And I was willing to invest in myself and hire all these coaches and seek out all these mentors. And when I got through that eye of the needle, as I like to think about it, Ursula, you know, into the million dollar club, because I think, you know, (laughs) from being a woman and researching these things that only two to 3% of women entrepreneurs ever get to 1 million in revenues. It's really astounding, right? That it's still such a small Mm -hmm. number. And for women of color, it's only 1%. So when I found that out, I just thought, all right, well, here's a place that I can help. I've always been interested in social change, you know, through my documentaries and just my my own values. And I thought, all right, well, I'm not going to solve world hunger or homelessness, but I can make a difference (laughs) here and help close the economic gender gap. And now we like to think of it at Million Dollar Women as, you know, really closing the economic gender gap one business at a time. We're helping mm-hmm. one million women get to one million in revenues. And, you know, when we do, we're going to have five million more jobs created, add $1.7 trillion to the U.S. economy, and then near wow. and dear to my heart, help more women have the lives that they want and deserve, you know, with a company that makes good money, time they can spend with their family, creating generational wealth and all the other great things that happen when women are successful. 
Well, and all those aspects are super important. It's not just about the profit the business makes. It's about how are you living the life that you want as well? That's impact too. Absolutely. And and I can't tell you how many women call us and say, you know, we want to make more money. I mean, when they call us, you know, they want to make more money because we're million dollar women. So that's a given. (laughs) But the next thing out of their mouth is often because there's this nonprofit I want to give more to, or I want to serve on the school board of my, you know, county and make sure we make real reform in the public school system. You know, these women are leaders. And as leaders, they yes, they want to make more money, but it's rarely to buy a Porsche, right? I never hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I want a yacht. Exactly. (laughs) I really need to retire to Fiji. Um, It's really more about how can I make a difference in my lifetime. And that's part of why our work is so rewarding is the women who are part of our community. Yes, they want to make more money, but they're really also making a big impact through their local communities and often national and international interests. Hmm. Yeah, that's so important to notice and uh, that that impact component. So it's fantastic that you've made such progress in the time that you've been doing that. And you you also taught women how to uh, how to work towards obtaining financing, which is such an important thing. It's um, I, I read a statistic a few months ago about how few women get venture capital funding. And so your kind of training is, is super valuable. Well, I raised venture capital and it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. I do have, wow. I do have two children, so we'll put labor above raising venture capital, but, wow. <laughs> but, but I have to think about it a minute um, because oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it took so long to research. How do I go about this? And I yeah. only met one woman who had ever raised venture capital. Now that has changed, mm-hmm. right? But not as much as you'd think. It's still pretty hard to find women who've raised significant venture capital funds. I think the number is hovering around 2%, that about 2%, right? 2% of venture capital is invested in women-run businesses. But I will see something slightly more controversial that that comes out of my five years of working with women at Million Dollar Women is that it's not just a problem of men not wanting to invest in women. And happily, there are more and more women who are investors. So that is helping too. And women are more apt to take a chance on a woman. But it's also that women aren't seeking out the skills they need to become investable, right? And that doesn't get discussed as much. And I really see them as bookend problems in the sense that, you know, a venture capital is not a philanthropist. He wants to make his money back, he or she. Sure. And so, yes, you need to be, you know, confident and have a great business and all that. But you have to learn how to do that dance. You know, I spent nine months learning how to raise venture capital, and I see some women who, you know, aren't taking the time to learn those things so that they can go in and be successful in that space. It's a very codified space. It's almost like learning to tango or something, right? It's like you can't just go to a tango <laughs> class and say, well, I'll just do a square dance and maybe no one will notice. <laughs> right, right. right. Raising venture capital, there are very, you know, clear rules of how that goes. Now, look, at one point, maybe the whole system will change. That would be great. And there'll be easier and better ways of accessing capital to grow your business. But so long as so much of the wealth is concentrated in the hands of VCs, I teach the women in our community how to dance that dance because they have raised millions of dollars and grown big, successful businesses. Uh, You know, I'm thinking of of one, uh, Erin Carpenter, who came to us when she had a tiny business called Nude Bar. She was helping women of color get access to undergarments, especially tights and hosiery. That was actually the right 
skin color for their appropriate color. Correct. Because as she taught me, you know, nude was white girl nude, right? And she was a dancer. So she would be dyeing her tights in the sink. She's black and she would dye her tights in the sink. And she found Mm. out all these other dancers were dyeing their tights in the sink. And Mm -hmm. so she created this company that, you know, first started off kind of small and it was hard to get traction and inventory is expensive. But now here we are five years later, she was one of the first investments that Serena Williams and the Bumble Fund made in entrepreneur. Yes. And she just closed 1.4 million in funding. Not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago. We're so proud of her. So those are the stories we love. These tenacious driven women who learn how to go raise capital and are able to get significant funding for their companies. Yeah, love that. Love that. Thank you for sharing that story. That's so helpful, I think, for to hear an example of how you can do that. So thank you for that. Well, let's get into this whole mindset thing, since it's so important for uh, being an entrepreneur, being yeah. successful, scaling your business. So in your book, Go Big Now, you have a chapter called Choose Results Over Reasons. And when I first heard that, it meant something a little different to me than it actually turned out to be. So tell us, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm laughing because I just told a fellow coach this morning how I used it last night. (laughs) (laughs) I do use all these practices that I teach in my book. And just for a little bit of context, when I wrote Go Big Now, it was really because the women I coached in Million Dollar Women all needed help with mindset. And that was what had helped me, as I shared earlier. So I got trained as an NLP master practitioner. And I've been using mindset coaching to help these women double their revenues, reach a million, raise capital. I now have worked with some men as well. And I found that it was hard to teach them all they needed to know in a short period of time. So I wrote Go Big Now to make the eight essential mindset practices you need readily available and accessible. And I I drew them not only from my own coaching work, but from studying some of the most successful people in politics, entrepreneurship, uh, Olympic athletes. It turns out they're all using the same practices. So I boiled Mm. it down to eight. And results over reasons, yes, is one of the eight that I teach. And what that means is it's starting with what are the results you're trying to get? And how important are they to you? And then what are you willing to do to get there? Because unconsciously, we often default to the reasons we can't have what we want. And then we don't even look for how we can solve a problem. So I'll share the way I used it last night. Um, Go Big Now came out a couple of months ago. I've probably been on, I don't know, 30 podcasts and a few TV shows. And I started realizing, oh, I never did get around to making something people can do. You know, eventually I'll probably create an online course. But right now they can take an an assessment on my website, the Go Big Now assessment to see where their mindset is. But I wanted there to be, you know, something interactive. So I thought, well, gosh, maybe I'll do a 21 days to a Go Big Mindset kind of challenge, like an inexpensive, you know, course you can take where every day I'll send you an email. And my friend who's a coach had created one of those. But then immediately all the reasons came in. I couldn't do that, right? We're really busy with other projects <laughs> at our office. My kids are leaving for camp soon. I have to spend time right. with them. You know, I have all these podcasts scheduled. There are all these reasons it's not the right time. But then I said, you know what? No, I'm going to launch this thing July 9th, right? That's the result I want. And that is in just a few days. So I wound up hiring my cat sitter. I just adapted cats. And I found <laughs> out that this new cat sitter went to Harvard and she is uh, a psychology major. And I said, well, hey, if I pay you, will you come sit with me for a couple of evenings and just pull out of my head all this stuff that we need to put into this 21-day challenge? And let's just get this thing done. 
And she said, oh, my God, I'd love to do that. So she was at my house last <laughs> night <laughs> from 7 oh, to 9.30. We had a blast. I paid her to read the book. And we now are on our way to having 21 days of content to deliver to my audience. That's oh, results that's over so reasons. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so good. Well, yeah, let's make sure uh, we'll get the link for uh, for that when it's up and running. Make sure that when people consult the show notes that that's there. Uh, thank so, you. I'd love to share it with your audience. Yeah. Well, okay. So you talked about limiting beliefs a few times now. So in the book, you talk about how ditching limiting beliefs is more like whack-a-mole than once and done. Yeah. So how do you do it? Well, so whack-a-mole, for those who don't remember that game, right, is where there's a little mole who pops his head up and then you have a little plastic hammer and you hit him on the head, but then another one pops up and then another one pops up. So right. when you get rid of a limiting belief, which again is, is an unconscious belief you have about yourself, like for instance, well, I'm a creative person. So I couldn't possibly be good at finances, right? Or no one in my family ever ran a business. So how could I run a multimillion dollar business? Or I didn't study economics or take any finance classes. So how could I go raise capital? And most of those are things I have thought in my own life. So those are easy ones for yeah. me to access. Right. They're all limiting right. beliefs that are going to prevent you from doing things that you might want to be doing, like growing a successful business or raising capital. Once you break through one, you realize, oh, gosh, these all these things I took to be truths with a capital T in my life are actually up for grabs. And so then yeah. you can go get another one, right? I think I shared in the book that after I got rid of my limiting belief that I could not raise venture capital because I didn't have a finance background and I went on to raise $6 million. So it turns out, no, that was not true. Um, that was a limiting belief. Then I yeah. had to bust a personal limiting belief because they can show up in your professional life or your personal life where I didn't think I could drive. Uh, I know you're in, in North Carolina, right, Ursula? Mm -hmm. So the idea mm -hmm. of not driving would mean, right, you can't go anywhere where you live. Yeah. Well, I live in Manhattan. It's, it's limiting. It's limiting, right? <laughs> but in Manhattan, you can actually kind of get away with that because right. a lot of people don't own cars. I'm a city yeah. person. I've always lived in big cities. So I made it to my early 40s without having ever owned a car and had this deep fear of driving that I never even really had to look at because my ex-husband, who I was with for 12 years, loved driving. He was from California. All my friends seemed to be drivers. I just never had to tackle that fear. Well, right. then I got divorced. And a few months after we got divorced, my ex-husband called up and said, okay, I'm going to take the kids and drop them off at camp. And then at the end of, of July, you go pick them up. <laughs> and I was like, in the car, right, I was like camp deep in Massachusetts camp, the one that's like deep in the woods where there's no public transportation, <laughs> that camp. And I panicked Ursula. I was like, no, I, I can't do that. No, I'm going to have to hire a driver. I don't know. My brain started going bananas with how am I going to do this? And then I realized, oh, my God, this is a limiting belief I have, right? Here I am in my, in my early 40s, built a multi-million dollar business. Maybe right. this is just a limiting belief. And so I actually, you'll laugh, I pulled out my book, Million Dollar Women, and went to the chapter where I teach how to get rid of a limiting belief. I couldn't quite remember <laughs> how to do it. And I followed the four steps, which are simply to you know say it out loud, share it with a coach, friend, or mentor to help you on the journey. Step three, figure out the positive opposite. And step four create an action plan of 10 things you're going to do to take you closer to the positive opposite. And the mm. fact is the first few that you do feel very uncomfortable and very not you, right? The first few times oh, I was right. driving around, sure. but then by the time you're on steps seven, eight, nine, and 10, you're a lot more comfortable and you realize, oh, wait, 
this was just a limiting belief. And I did drive onto that campus and, you know, camp, campus, playground, whatever you want to call it, pick up my kids. I remember when I got out of the car, they were like, wait, mom, you drove me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, totally. That's great. That's great. So what is it, what is, what keeps you from procrastinating through the 10 steps? Like I'm listening to this going, okay, that all sounds very reasonable, but emotionally speaking, if it's truly a limiting belief, how do oh, you I'm get? I'm so glad you asked. Ah. Well, that is step, why step two is so important to share it with a coach, mentor, or friend. Because ah. what I have found over the years is that your limiting belief might feel to you like an oak tree. Like you look out the window, you can look at your kitchen window. There's this huge oak tree there. It's always been there. It's always going to be there. It's so real. But to someone else, it might just look like a blade of grass, Mm -hmm. right? Like when I told one of my dear friends, you know, I'm actually terrified of driving. You know, I grew up with a mom who used to always say, Julia, a car is a lethal weapon. Oh, no. You should avoid. Well, no wonder you didn't Well, drive. right, exactly. You should avoid getting in cars whenever possible. She had witnessed a car accident in her teenage years, and she passed that on to me, and I never even really questioned it. So to my friend, you know, she just kind of looked at me like, wait, you've built a multi-million dollar business. You've lived all over the world. You've done all these things. Like, I, right. I think you could probably figure out how to drive. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you share it with a friend, because they keep you accountable, and they help you yeah. realize, you know, that there is another way of of being, you just have to practice doing it. Sure. Yeah. No, so good. Well, um, in that process of of doing that, this is all around thoughts. Your mindset is around thoughts. And I know you've got an approach to shift your thoughts. So share with us how that happens. Well, back to making things more accessible. You know, when I was doing all these workshops and studying with some of the top mindset teachers in the country, I noticed they all had this principle they loved, which was, uh, your thoughts lead to things in your life. And I just found that a little confusing. And I was like, that there seems like there's an ellipse there because, you know, yeah. if I think about a martini in my hand, like is a martini going to appear? No, it's not. Right. So, so how does that work? <laughs> and so I did some digging and learned the method that they're talking about and created an easy to remember acronym for it. So people really can follow how this works because it is true that everything you have in your life originated as a thought. So I call this T-Bear, and the acronym is T-B-E-A-R, and I'll break that down for you. This is how your thoughts become results in your life. So if you have a thought over and over again, that's the T, it becomes a belief. That's the B, like the oak tree, mm-hmm. right outside the kitchen window. Yeah. Now, Think it often enough, and it becomes a belief. 100%, and, and it becomes like yeah. a truth for you that you don't question anymore. Yeah. Now, all beliefs have a positive or a negative emotion attached to them. So the belief that I'm bad at driving and cars are scary, positive or negative emotion? Uh, Negative. Correct. So now comes the A of T-Bear. The A is action. Depending on whether your belief has a positive or a negative emotion attached to it, you're going to take a lot of action or very little action. How much driving did I do over the years, Ursula? (laughs) It sounds like none. Right? Because I had that belief with a negative emotion attached to it. So then what's the result? The R was I a good driver? Did I enjoy driving? No, I was terrible at driving and I didn't enjoy it. That was my result. So T-B-E-A-R is a great way to remind yourself that if you want to change your results and what are results, it's how much money you have, how much confidence you have, what kind of relationships do you have in your life? How fit are you? How healthy are you? Those are all just results. They all originated as thoughts that you had over and over again that became beliefs. That's the B. 
that have either a positive or a negative emotion. That's the E. Then you took action. If it was a positive emotion, you took lots of action. If it was a negative emotion, you avoided it, took very little action and right. got the corresponding results. So when you're ready to make a change, you got to go all the way back to the thoughts and start a new chain of events. So good. Yeah, it's a really helpful acronym to remember that. And uh, I think people sometimes think that things begin with emotions. And for a long time, the the uh, until the research was done, that was something that people were more focused on changing, but you're already down the path That's when right. you get to that. That's point. right. No, so, it really starts with the thoughts and the thoughts create the emotions, right? Or beliefs. I mean, yeah. anything you have in your life that you like, Ursula, it comes from an empowering belief. There's only two types of belief. It's very easy, empowering or limiting. <laughs> so mm. if you look at the things in your life that you like, right? Like maybe, gosh, I'm so creative and I love how my home looks, or you know, I'm so close with all my friends. I'm really a great relationship person. Those all originated in thoughts and created empowering beliefs about yourself, which got you to the results you have. What's so cool about NLP is it allows you to stop and shine a flashlight on your unconscious and say, you know, are these beliefs still serving me? The ones that are empowering, let's keep those. That's great. They're producing good results in your life. But the ones that are limiting, maybe it's time to get rid of them and replace them with more empowering ones and start getting different results. Mm. That's great. Well, since we're on the topic of results, you talk about done decisions. So what do you, what do you mean by that? Because decision is a choice you're making to move in a certain direction is what what's so special about a done decision? Well, you know, I think people think they know how to make decisions. I know I thought I did, but it turns out all decisions are not created <laughs> equal. So when you do mindset training, you find out that there's hopeful decisions and done decisions. And so a hopeful mm -hmm. decision sounds like this. Um, I would really like to lose 30 pounds, you know, by the summer, if it's the winter right now. So right. you kind of hope that happens, right? You would like it to happen. You hope it happens. You might tell a few people about it, get excited about it. But how many people say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds by the summer and don't do it? How many do you think <laughs> do that? A lot. Yeah, probably millions. Probably most people. Right? Yeah. So here's what makes the difference. A done decision, it has a specific time frame around it. It has a positive emotion attached to it. And it's got the results that you're looking for, like really dialed up so that you can get excited about it. So it might sound like this. So I'm going to lose 30 pounds by June 1st so that I can enjoy doing things outside on the lake with my friends and feel really great about my body. Mm. Okay. So you've got a time factor, you've got a positive emotion and you've got the result that you're going for so that you have that really dialed up and in your kind of vision while you're pursuing the goal. And, then, well, and you're painting a picture for yourself too, of what it's going to look like and feel like. That's correct. That visualization yeah. is, is another part of mindset work, being able to visualize the result so that you, you know, the first time you're tempted to, you know, get off your plan or not do your workout, you have something you can focus on. Now, of course, you still should hire a trainer or follow a method. I'm not saying that's enough to get it done, but that sure. will put you in a different frame of mind where you're seeking very concrete action steps and have that positive emotion around it, right? It's not just getting fit for the sake of getting fit. It's, I'm going to be lying on that dock that I laid on last summer and looked at my body and was like, oh, I don't like what I see. This summer, I'm going to lay on that dock and be like, ooh, look at me. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that makes a difference. These hopeful, 
get rid of the hopeful decisions and make it what we call a done decision. And of course, this works in business as well. I was just giving a little personal example. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, something that uh, struck me about uh, talking about goals, so decisions lead you to goals. So uh, you start off with go big goals, which to me implies something way out of reach, like big, really a major leap. And But you describe a go big goal as just a little uncomfortable or a little bit out of reach. Yes. Why, do you, why do you advise that rather than some big leap kind of goal? Well, it's funny. On another podcast, someone said to me, um, or they asked, you know, well, what do you do if people set goals that are really too big? And I laughed because that is not the main problem <laughs> I see out there. People set goals that are too no. small, <laughs> right? Yeah. They start a yeah. business and they say, you know, I mean, I get women who call me up. I say, okay, what are you making now? You know, 100,000. Great. What do you want to be making in three years? Oh, I don't know. 250,000? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, it's three years from now, right? Like you could be making a million in three years, right? If, right? if that's your goal yeah. and if you mm -hmm. reverse engineer that goal. So it's just a challenge to think bigger than you're thinking right now. And it's different for everyone. I mean, even the term million dollar women, Ursula, for us, that is just a placeholder for a set of dreams. You know, we have women in our community who want to make 800,000 a year, but they're paying themselves 400,000 of that 800,000, right? Mm -hmm. Now you could make a million point one, but have a, a company that has very high overhead, you know, a, high, a big team or lots of inventory, sure. and you're only paying yourself 150,000, right? I think I'd rather have the $800,000 business that pays $400,000. So it's not sure. that we're stuck on this million dollars. And as a coach, you know, I always say to my clients, look, I don't have any dreams for you. I just want to help you dream your biggest dream and achieve it. But few people have someone in their life to help them think bigger than they're thinking now, right? Who do you do that with? You don't have a coach or a mentor there likely isn't anyone saying to you like, hey, why stop there? Like, what's the bigger version of that? And so that's right. the first thing we do in the book is help people to think bigger and dream that bigger dream and then map out what it takes to get there from a mindset perspective. Hmm. Okay. Well, since we're talking about going big and scaling, you talk about how grit can actually get in the way of scaling and that's such an interesting perspective. I mean, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, um, such a has been so influential in showing people how grit can move you forward towards your goals. So how is grit an obstacle once yeah, you start I'm scaling? so glad you asked about this. I'm going to war on grit. <laughs> <laughs> I am done with the grit narrative because uh, especially as women, we are socialized to work so hard. We're, we're Almost yeah. all of us were told by our parents, just work harder than all the guys and everybody else and you'll get ahead. And right. that was just a pack of lies because the truth is when I got to 400,000 in revenues in my business, Little Pim, the language teaching business, I was stuck and I was working so hard. I was throwing everything I had at it. I was doing what I'd been taught to do, which could be translated to grit, right? I had a lot of grit. But that was mm -hmm. not going to get me to a million and two million and three million in my business or to raise venture capital or to do any of the things I wanted to do, become a big, you know, successful brand. I needed to learn a whole new way of working, how to hire great teams, how to be a better manager, how to raise venture capital, how to rebrand the whole company. None of that has to do with grit. And in fact, grit is your enemy. 
when you're trying to do those things because grit is what keeps you fixing all the broken links on the website and answering every customer service email and thinking, well, I can't hire an assistant. Who am I to have an assistant? I need to just do it all myself. So mm-hmm. I think we should go to war on grit and say, you know, grit got us here, but it's not going to get us there. What's going to get us yeah. there is the go big mindset, right? How do people who've achieved big things in their life, how do they think? And how can I think more like them and take more of the actions they take to get more of the results they're getting? Mm. Yeah, I think that transition from starting a business and growing it to a certain point and then scaling, there's a big shift that has to happen in mindset and in the things that you do in your business. It's uh, and that whole thing of delegating is that's a very big deal for people. With mindset, right? Because you're not going to delegate if you don't think you deserve it or you don't see where the company is going that's going to make enough money to pay for the assistant you're trying to delegate to, right? Yeah. So, yes, you're so right. It's all connected. Yeah. Well, on the flip side of, of grit is vulnerability. And you talk about being vulnerability being directly related to business success. What do you mean by that? So, Brene Brown, I think, said this best. She said, vulnerability is the last thing I want to show you about me, but it's the first Mm -hmm. thing I want to see in you. Mm -hmm. We all know how if we go to a party and we sit down next to someone who's very genuine and authentic with us and shares something they're struggling with, you know, we immediately feel like we like them, right? Because they've been vulnerable Mm -hmm. with us. Well, when you're a leader, it's times a thousand, the need to be vulnerable, because there is a tendency, we all have, I have it too, to, you know, want to show up like, oh, I've got all the answers, and I'm your leader, and I'm going to take you there. But that doesn't actually help your team feel connected to you as a human being, to feel bought in to helping to solve the problems in your company. So this is something I really encourage leaders to practice is you know, strength and vulnerability, they go hand in hand, you just you can't just come in every day, you know, sobbing, obviously, because there's too much of vulnerability. Um, although we all have right. moments, we'd like to do that as, as CEOs. But if you can combine the strength of yes, I have a plan, I'm going to take you there with no, I don't have all the answers. And actually, right now, I'm a little bit in the dark, can we all have a meeting? And can I get all your best ideas? That leader is going to have a much more engaged, excited, team that's going to bring their best creativity and their best work to the table. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. Cause I think that's so important. Thank you for asking. Um, well, as much as I'm going to grit yeah. to war on grit, <laughs> I would also yeah. really love to see leaders be more self-compassionate. That's something I'm also very, yes. very um, passionate about myself because I think the flip yeah. side of the CEO leader personality is often an inability to practice self-care. And that's mm-hmm. where you see a lot of burnout. You see people not you know, taking care of themselves mentally or physically. There's actually a higher yeah. depression rate among CEOs. I just wrote an article on this actually on LinkedIn mm-hmm. uh, called, mm-hmm. uh, do you ever feel like your business is killing you? Wow. That's an intention grabbing title. Right. Well, I co-wrote it with Sean Jahal, a fellow coach. He's a happiness coach and I'm a mindset coach. And we noticed that we were seeing among our clients a high level of anxiety and depression, ironically, coming out of the pandemic. Because in the pandemic, we were all sort of in the fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Just handling this crisis, trying to keep our businesses alive, trying to support our teams. But now there's this, okay, well, I've got to rebuild the business, right? And maybe revenues are down, or maybe you didn't get a government loan. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges entrepreneurs are facing. So we're really encouraging people to have 
more authentic and vulnerable conversations about mental health, about supporting each other, and not having CEOs, you know, feel isolated and like they have to solve all these problems on their own. Right. Well, and they're in survival mode during the pandemic, and we're coming out of that now. So That's right, yeah. but there are different needs, you know, and there are just as many mental health needs now as as during the pandemic. Yeah. In the uh, latter part of your book, you talk about this be, do, have sequence. And I've heard this many times. And my question is always, how do you figure out what to be in order to do uh, what you need to do and have what you want to have? And I know you take people through this exercise of five and three, it's five, three, one. So five year, three year, and one year vision, but I find setting five-year and three-year visions kind of limiting because as soon as you start to take action, mm -hmm. the landscape shifts and whatever you said about five years from now, most of it is probably out the window. That is so, so true. Yes. But uh, I think what it's meant to do is not to, to give you sort of a blueprint for success, you know, doing, and the, the, the exercise you're referring to is called 531 Clarity, just for your listeners. And it's an mm -hmm. exercise that I found very helpful that my coaching clients find very helpful where you map out where you'd like to be in five years and three years and in one year. But it's less about achieving all those things or checking them off a list. And it's more about getting your unconscious focused on what are the things that matter to you? What direction are you headed in? You know, I'll give you an example from my own life. When I wrote Million Dollar Women, I was convinced that I was going to go on this national speaking tour to like every city in America and, you know, spread the word about women entrepreneurship and how to help them and yada, yada. And I created right. this whole PowerPoint deck and I went out to raise money from corporate sponsors to help me spread this message, you know, and I was all fired up. Didn't happen. Couldn't get the sponsors <laughs> to get on board, you know, never happened. And I kind of forgot about it. And so three years later, I was running my online business school, Million Dollar Women, we're a social venture and we're helping women through these online programs. And I was cleaning out my file cabinet. And I pulled out this little folder that said, you know, Million Dollar Women campaign. <laughs> and I looked back through it and I realized I actually didn't want to do that. I had what was called a competing commitment, which is something I do teach about in the book, where you, mm -hmm. you say you want to do something, but in fact, there's something else you're unconsciously committed to that matters more to you. In my case, mm -hmm. when I wrote Million Dollar Women, it was published right around the time I was getting divorced. Happily, it was a fairly amicable divorce. But now I only had half the amount of time with my kids. We shared custody. Sure. And my kids were young. Yeah. They were seven and 10. So really, the last thing I wanted to be doing was running around the country, spending more nights away from home, more nights away from my children. So that project didn't take off. But here I was three years later doing exactly what I wanted to be doing, reaching women all over the country making these business training accessible, having an impact, but in a way that worked better for my life. So mm -hmm. had I done that in a 531 exercise, I would have written in five years, you know, the Million Dollar Women campaign is a huge success, blah, blah, blah. Well, that didn't yeah. happen. But it got me focused on what do I want to be doing with my life? I want to be helping other women access economic freedom. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what I was doing. It just took a different form. Does that, does that help to explain Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my last question for you before we get to the rapid round is really around this being aspect. And one of the things you said in the book is that intentional networking is an area that women haven't developed very well. So what do you what do women need to do in terms of networking 
Actually, that's not from the book. I, I heard you say that in an interview, but um, could you talk, talk a little bit about that. that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we yeah. said business is 80% mindset, 20% skill set. Well, one of the yeah. skill sets is networking. So let's go deep yeah. into that a minute. Um, there are three types of networking, operational, strategic, and I'm forgetting the third all of a sudden. But Intentional? No, that's my term, actually, that I created. Oh, um, okay. But I can't remember right now, but that's okay. But the kind that women are usually good at, oh, it's personal, sorry, operational, yeah. personal, and strategic. So personal okay. is, you know, who are your friends, right? Do you have a network of people you can rely on? And that's very important. Operational is, let's say you want to get something solved, right? You were in charge of, you know, getting all the kids the apple picking orchard. You know, how do you rent a bus? How many chaperones do you need? Well, that's an operational question. You could probably call mm -hmm. a friend who's done that and help you figure out how to do it. The third kind of networking, though, is strategic, and that is where women often don't have a plan. Now, strategic networking is how often are you in rooms of people who are ahead of where you are and who can pull you mm. forward? Because studies have shown one of the best ways to get ahead is to spend time around people who are where you're trying to go. And when I asked mm. myself this question about the operational, personal, and strategic networks, I had two young children at home. I had a lot of mom friends. So I felt pretty good about the personal, right? And friends from right. college and whatnot. Operational, I could get stuff done. I was good at that. But I thought, well, gosh, mm -hmm. who do I spend time with who's more successful than I am? And the answer was not very many people. So I joined yeah. an organization of entrepreneurs called Entrepreneurs Organization that was all very successful entrepreneurs. And it completely shifted my thinking the kind of skills I found out I needed to acquire, my ability to raise venture capital, my ability to think big, it was game-changing for me. And it's one of the reasons I created Million Dollar Women. I want to give that experience to women across the country who you know, don't have an organization they can join. We're giving them that. Ours is a membership site that they can join. But the point being, if you're listening and you're thinking, oh yeah, I don't know who my strategic network is, that's why I call it intentional networking. I want women to get more intentional about how they're spending their time outside of the house. Many of us have kids like I do or are taking care of aging parents. Time is our mm -hmm. most precious thing. So how can we set aside maybe one night a week that's not about having you know dinner with a friend or with your partner or taking care of your kids? It's about going to a networking event, a professional networking event. Even better, join something because if you spend the money, you'll go. <laughs> yeah, right. Have you done that, yeah, Ursula? I'm sure you have, right? Join professional networks to to get find I, other people. I have actually, and it's a little more challenging living in where I am now, which is a little removed from sort of mainstream business. I used to live in Toronto, and that was super easy oh, to do. Yeah, big entrepreneurs. And you're in New York, so well, and that's yeah. the thing: women entrepreneurs and men too. But we work with women at Million Dollar Women. They're all over the country. They're in South Dakota mm -hmm. and deep Washington State, and you know, and if you don't live near an entrepreneurial hub, it can be hard to connect with other entrepreneurs. So again, that's why yeah. we've taken our whole business online. We were online before the pandemic, actually. We started out online. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, great to have that resource. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Fantastic. So yeah. Well, Julia, I always end these interviews with three rapid round questions about impact. Are you ready? Let's do it. Let's go okay. big on impact. <laughs> All right. The first one is, what's the biggest thing uh, you've learned about having impact? The biggest thing I've learned is to be both macro and micro. So hmm. I'm helping 1 million women get to 1 million in revenues, but I'm very intentional about working one-on-one -on -one with a handful of clients every year. 
because I want to keep that emotional connection and energy and excitement around helping to change one person's life. You know, I got on the phone this morning with a coaching client who was just so overwhelmed and burnt out. And really, all they needed was for me to order them to take a morning off, right? Which is going to happen tomorrow. Um, And it felt so good, you know, to get off that call. We did a lot of other work too. But I know that 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 client's energy mood has shifted. They know what to do. They're going to be calmer today. They're going to show up differently for their team. And so be both macro and micro is is what I've learned. Yeah, so good. Well, second question is, what's one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I've consistently followed my motto, which is have the fear, do it anyway. Mm. (laughs) So I don't expect myself to not be afraid because I'm not superhuman. You know, I have fears, but I just don't let them stop me. So I go forward with the fear and I try to look back at things that I had fear around that actually turned out okay or more than okay and remind myself that that's probably what's going to happen here again. Right. Such a good motto. Love that. Thank you. The last last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd offer to someone who's saying, I want to have more impact. I want to be out there more contributing. What would you say to them? Yeah, I'm going to go back to the be, do, have. You mentioned earlier, this was the game changer for me. You know, be, do, have is who do I want to be in the world, right? What what do I want to be? What kind of impact do I want to be making? And who is that person? Like in my case, I want to be helping women make more money. That's who I want to be, someone who's really moving the needle for women entrepreneurs around the country and eventually around the world. All right, well, what would that person be doing? That's the do, right? And so when I first had that thought, I wasn't an author, leader. I wasn't doing any of the things I'm doing now. I was running a little mm-hmm. PIM, which was, in the grand scheme of things, a small business. And I said, all right, well, that person would be writing. She would be speaking. She would be teaching other women. And so I started Ah. doing all those things in a very baby steps kind of way. You know, I was writing Hmm. a column for Forbes. They weren't paying me. You know, I was doing that on my own time. I was teaching women in my conference room on weekends how to scale up their own businesses. I was joining organizations and raising my voice about the role of women in those organizations. Now, if you keep doing all those things, eventually you will have the thing that's the have of be, do, have that person would have. And for me, that culminated in the meeting with my then publisher. They became my publisher of Million Dollar Women. I remember sitting in her office uh, and she took a look at my proposal and said, OK, Million Dollar Women, this is interesting. But, you know, I have a stack of proposals on my desk about this topic because this is a hot topic right now, this whole women and entrepreneurs <laughs> right. thing. And I thought, oh boy, here comes the no. But she said, you know what, Julia, we decided we want to work with you and we're going to give you a six-figure advance. And here's why. You're clearly an expert on this. You've been teaching, (laughs) you've been writing, you've been teaching other women how to do this. And that's the kind of author we like to partner with. Love that. Talk about be, do, have, right? I almost fell out of the chair. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, Julia, thank you so much for being here and for sharing the stories of your experience, your clients' experiences, and uh, just really bringing us into greater awareness of what is involved in scaling a business and uh, really leading a fulfilling life and having impact. That's all part of it as well. And that's so meaningful to me as well. So thank you, Ursula, for creating this space to talk about having an impact, right? There's no point in growing your business and making more money if it's not to have an impact on the world. So I... I send yeah, out, uh, sure. you know, great hopes for big things for everyone listening. And uh, if you want to take the Go Big Mindset Assessment, it's just on my website. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes at juliapimsler.com. 
Thanks so much. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? I'm very active on social media. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, my handle is at Julia Pimsler. I'm pretty easy to find. And you can also write me through my website at juliapimsler.com. Great. Thank you, Julia, for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Ursula. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and help us spread the word. Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment one-on-one with me, 60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 